Live from the NixCast Phanthropological Institute, today we're talking about Twilight fans. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Phanthropological, where today we'll be talking about fans of the paranormal romance series Twilight. I'm Nick G, and with me here to do that are my best friends, Nick T. Hello. And Nick Z. Hello. All right, guys. I'm going to start this episode by asking you guys a question. Oh, wow, this is new. I have never experienced being asked a question before. Oh. All right, go ahead. All right. I think you'll get the hang of it. What should we be calling this episode? Oh, do you mean in terms of, of the fandom? Of the, of the particular term. Oh. Uh, I ran across five or six at least. There's a lot. Twiheads and Twihards were the, the ones that I kept coming up against. I kind of like vampires. Ooh. Oh, then we're all not in agreement. Because oh, no. I think I think the the milder Twilighters is a uh, has a nice ring to it. All right, I could go. I could get behind Twilighters. Yeah. Well, we should really just uh, run a Google Analytics and see which one's trending right now. Anyway, you know, <laughs> far less contentious than I was anticipating. But all right, now that that's <laughs> well, I was gonna, what I was going to say was I think Twi Moms is probably the one we don't want to use. That's probably the most specific. Yeah. Well, it, it's very specific, and as we'll get into a little bit later in the episode, probably the least true. Not that the other ones make any more sense. Hmm. Yes. But, like, yeah. Also, I got even picking vampires, even though I picked vampires, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of other shows that now have paranormal elements. Like, mm-hmm. the most, the biggest one that I can think of would probably be, I don't know, The Vampire Diaries. Or maybe True Blood or something. Or True Blood, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, like so maybe I'm a vampire. Oh, you're a fan of the general paranormal genre? Me too. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> me too. You're a practicer of the dark arts? Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. Did you say do you, you say vampire? No, vampire. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, all right. This is as good a time as any. That was a great intro, G. Uh, Thank but to you. give a little bit of an overview. Give it a little bit of overview. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about fans of both Twilight, and for those of you who aren't in the know, and I feel like most of the time I do this segment, it's like, in case you can't read Wikipedia. Hey, uh, Twilight know, you, is a... you know what? Let's save it. Save them a click. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Twilight is a series of four vampire-themed fantasy romance novels by American author Stephanie Meyer. Released annually from 2005 through 2008, the four books chart the later teen years of Isabella, Bella Swan, a girl who moves to Forks, Washington, and falls in love with a 104-year-old vampire named Edward Cullen. Uh, This part is not in that little blurb, but Stephanie Meyer was also the author of The Host, um, which I believe is like a sci-fi series about aliens taking over the Earth by inhabiting Mm -hmm. people's bodies, Mm -hmm. and probably other stuff that I haven't read. Also, The Short Second Life of Brie Tanner, which is is tied to uh, the Twilight series. Yeah. So, interesting. Little aside here, I work at a used bookstore. Oh, hey. And Twilight books comprise 
like like by far the most donated book. <laughs> I've uh, seen I've seen them all. Like would any you say of them or any one in particular? No, just like the Twilight books outstrip any other books in like amount of times that I've received them in in like like books that we get in at the store. Yeah. Wow. Is uh is Fifty Shades of Grey uh, chasing chasing up those numbers as well, or? Yes. Well, I mean they're pretty much the same book, right? Oh boy! Hey, 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 <laughs> hey, hey! Look, when we started this podcast, we made a commitment to not judge fans, and we're not starting that here, not here, not now, not ever. No judgment. No judgment. No, no judgment. judgment. Yeah. What I was going to say is the reason that it's probably on the shelves is because it was so popular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was quite indicative it, of how, like, everyone had copies of that thing. Mm hmm. Yeah. Speaking of weird little tidbits about, uh, about Twilight, what did people find? Hopefully, in terms of the fandom, but even interesting stuff about the books or the, the movies would be cool. Okay. I got some. Oh, cool. I'm interested. Mm hmm. Okay. So. I don't know if you guys read this bit or not, but apparently they for Twilight came Stephanie Meyer in a dream. Oh, really? Oh. Which she has dated to like the exact day that she had the dream. Wow. wow. Does she have like a dream journal? Um, not as such. Hmm. After she had the dream, did she write for 72 hours straight? <laughs> what? <laughs> there's, there's another author. Who like wrote stuff that that was even more niche? Well, more niche, huh? That was just plain niche. Um, and uh, the story behind what this author wrote was that he had a dream about it, and it was so vivid that he couldn't get it out of his head. So he had to write it down, and he was just writing for like seventy-two hours straight or something ridiculous like that. I'm guessing no. Okay. <laughs> uh, I found actually this is kind of interesting. I thought. Not about Twilight fans. I do have some bits about Twilight fans or related to Twilight fans. I found out that apparently they're re-releasing the books. That's not too shocking. But mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're re-releasing the books. And uh, I don't know if Stephanie Meyer is rewriting the books and uh, reimagining them. But there will be a released version of this book where the genders are reversed. Oh. Oh, is that um, is that the version where it's from Edward's perspective instead of Bella's? I'm not sure. It sounds like they're going to like, like Bella will be male. Oh, and oh, like they're re just reversing the the roles. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I don't know if that means like a complete rewrite with the most of the same story elements, maybe with hmm. things that the author has learned about in terms of feedback of the book, or if it's literally just like I replaced the text with this. Like I have no <laughs> idea. Um, if I read it correctly. It's called uh, Life and Death. I don't know if it's been released yet. I could my sources could be out of date too. We, th yeah. we this is a best effort kind of show. Yeah. And uh, also, small bit of trivia. Apparently, Twilight came out like ten years ago, guys. Yeah. Which is ridiculous and crazy, but wow. Yeah. Harry uh, Potter is like not that far from twenty years ago. Man. Yeah, that's true. I remember. Yeah, geez, yeah. The first Harry Potter book came out around this, the time I started playing Pokemon, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, we'll we'll get to Harry Potter, I'm oh, sure. Yes. Oh yes. All right. 
so I, so I found the quote on Stephanie Meyer's website, mm-hmm. um, under the stephaniemeyer.com under the story of Twilight getting published. Oh yeah. And this paragraph is in there. I woke up on that June 2nd from a very vivid dream. In my dream, two people were having an intense conversation in a meadow in the woods. One of these people was just your average girl. The other person was a fantastically beautiful, sparkly, and a vampire. They were discussing the difficulties inherent in the facts that A, they were falling in love with each other, while B, the vampire was particularly attracted to the scent of her blood, was having a difficult time restraining himself from killing her immediately. For what is essentially a transcript of my dream, please see chapter 13 of the book. (laughs) So (laughs) that whole chunk just arrived via a dream and i think as a fan that'd be very appealing to me mm-hmm. you know it's like it's like because because you know like oh like why are they sparkly vampires aren't sparkly it's like <laughs> oh why are you know this like you know all this weird behavior you like smells her blood and is like really into that that's weird but like if it arrives fully formed in a from from like a mysterious place like a dream it's like yeah. oh okay i get where you're coming from now yeah it it seriously makes me wonder what would have happened if instead of Stephanie Myers having this dream, somebody like David Lynch had this dream. <laughs> oh no! Oh, I what forgot would... we're gonna have to do a Twin Peaks episode at some point. <laughs> there is yep. no doubt in my mind that we're gonna have to do a Twin Peaks episode oh, yes. at some point. Oh yes. <laughs> anyway, um, following up, not derailing the podcast anymore, but actually following up on your bit of of trivia based around the author. Um, I also found a bit of trivia regarding the story of the creation of Twilight. Mm-hmm. Apparently, when Stephanie Myers was looking for a place to set her book, what she did was she went to Google, like you do, mm-hmm. and she typed in rainiest place in the U.S. <laughs> and Forks, Washington wow. came up. Done and done. Wow. Wow. You know what? It's good to know that that was planned from the start. <laughs> In part of my research for this episode, I watched the film and I was like, it is so dreary. <laughs> it's just raining constantly. No, no place like, on earth could ex- exist like how this. How oh, could wait. it possibly be? <laughs> Interesting that that is, is that that is how it was arrived at. Yeah. Especially like, after yeah. a dream. <laughs> okay. I'm going to toss a, a light little softball out here before I, I get into some interesting facts about the fans. This is actually about the fans, so starting to get into that. All right. Mm-hmm. I guess two quick softballs. Right. So what famous book slash movie was a fanfic of Twilight? Maybe Fifty Shades so, of Grey. Yeah, exactly. But do you know the name of the original work? Um, 49 Shades of Grey. Ah, I took my answer. (laughs) (laughs) So this I found out through a little bit of research. Not super hard research, mind you. Apparently, the original fanfic is called Master of the Universe. And unsurprisingly, actually, I really should have found out why it's called that. Because that name is just really intriguing to me right now. I wonder Uh, if it's related to uh, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, in which there are stock traders who refer to themselves as the Masters of the Universe. I... Maybe. Sounds like there's an obvious connection there, so I well, don't see I mean, why it wouldn't be that. Isn't isn't Christian Grey some kind of like stock trader business Wall Street guy? Well, that's true. Yeah, but I I don't know how much has changed between the original fanfic and the the story. Unless somebody literally was like, Oh hey, we'll make um Edward a stock trader. 
I feel I, like I that know. probably wasn't in the original, but no. And say say that for the Fifty Shades episode. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Now, actual facts about the fandom. Things that I learned. Okay. This one's also fanfic related. By January 2010, so this is, uh, I guess, two years after Twilight, the entire book series, was released. I guess the movies probably were still up at this time. By January 2010, there were over 125,000 fanfics on fanfic.net. It was the third largest fandom on fanfiction.net after Harry Potter and Naruto. By June 2010, yep, apparently those are the top two. It's got to be Harry Potter and Naruto, right? Like those, (laughs) those two in that order. By June 2010, there were over 150,000 Twilight stories. Wow. So, that's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. First movie was 2008. Oh, okay. So, starting to... Okay. Yeah. I also found out that the Twilight fandom was perhaps a little bit insular because uh, things like fan fests, uh, fanfic exchanges, and different writing prompt memes were not very common until people started drifting in to other fandoms and bringing things back into the Twilight fandom. Interesting. In mm. fact, most most of the communication that happened with Twilight fans happened over Twitter or over the Twilighted forum. Hmm. Interesting. I also have one one little tidbit of trivia that I have left, which isn't related to Twilight, but is was interesting, and I'll come back to it. I want to hear... What else you guys found out? Well, I found out something related to the fans, for sure. Um, I discovered, through my research, that uh, the town of Forks has openly embraced Twilight Fever. Um, they've they've got a hard case of vampirism over there right now, let me tell you. Um, and one of the ways in which they express this love of, of Twilight is they have a, a convention there that happens every year. And as far as I know, it's fan-run, but it's supported by a bunch of local businesses because a lot of the events involve some sort of, like, fundraising or uh, sort of donations in kind kind of kind of deal. So it's like this convention run in Forks that helps out the community and also helps bring all these Twilight fans together. And the bit of trivia um, that relates to this convention, which is called Forever Twilight in the Forks... <laughs> is that it's held on Bella's birthday. Or rather, the weekend that falls closest to Bella's birthday. Can either of you guess, out of all 365 days of the year, which day is Bella's birthday? My last name is is Swan. Yep. (laughs) And the Cygnus constellation. Okay. Uh, It appears I have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, um, you were probably very close. How? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to get to Swan from Swan to like a month. So like, there's no, there's no chance. Um, November third. All right, I we guess. have November third. T. October sixth. Don't say October our guesses 6th. are wrong. And, and yeah, unfortunately, you both went over. Nobody wins. <laughs> because it is September 13th. And one other little bit of trivia related to this convention. Originally, it had a different name. It was not always Forever Twilight in the Forks. Originally, it was Stephanie Meyer's Day. Whoa. Oh, hey. Interesting. Yeah. Were there two people being like, who's that? 
Um, <laughs> not not that she's not famous, but it's like it's one more connection to make to get to like what it is, right? Well, I think that's part of it. Um, I from uh, from the, looking at the schedule, it looks like now it's a, a weekend long event, whereas before it might have just been one day. Hmm. Also, based on some of the things that Stephanie Myers has said about uh, Twilight, I think she probably did not want to be associated with it to that degree anymore. That's fair. Speaking of the woods, um, mm-hmm. apparently there's a term in fandom, which I'd never heard before, called feral fandom. And it's typically applied to people. Um, what, well, I'll read what I... I had a hard time understanding it. I think in principle it makes sense. The idea is that feral fans are people that have entered from nowhere in particular. They've entered kind of from the wild. Hmm. There's not any particular thing. It's not like they were a fan of science fiction or fantasy or any um, particular area. They just come out of nowhere. Originally, based on the research that I did, the term came from a time when there were gatekeepers into fandom. Interesting. So, you know, there was like the, quote, proper channels to get into things. Right. And then there uh. was any, there was those uncouth. Anyway, <laughs> that's probably why the term has fallen out of favor. But it was interesting because I think it's true. And we'll t- probably touch on this when we get into, you know, how fandom hit the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Is that a lot of people who were fans of Twilight and probably pa- fans of Harry Potter or anything like that were fans that just like became fans of that. They weren't previously fans of anything in particular so what what form does that fandom take what do you mean said they're like what what do they do or what do they enjoy what 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 do you mean i i think the deal is that like they're feral fans because it's not like they're they started out as fans of fantasy and then focused in on harry potter it's that like they just came from the ether and started to be fans of harry potter Oh, okay. You're saying that, that yeah. these Twilight fans are just like, just sprung up, created from where no fan was previously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I was, I was missing the connection. I'm sorry. Sorry. I did. I didn't do a very good job of explaining that. I had a hard time reading the article because it started from this position of like a time that I was not part of where, you know, there were gatekeepers and I'm like, right now, mm. basically a lot of fans are feral fans. They just... <laughs> See a thing and then enjoy it. Hey, mm-hmm. I like this thing. That's the yeah, thing yeah. that I like. So, that's that's also probably why why they stopped calling, stop using that term because it's significantly. It's, it's not very. Like it's it sounds more negative than it really needs to be for what it actually describes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. That may lead nicely into our first topic in that uh, these fans sprang out of nowhere, much to the chagrin of people at Comic-Con. Oh, no. So once I found uh, the phrase Twilight Ruined Comic-Con, <laughs> um, that was pretty much all, all I wanted to search out because this was fascinating to me. So the story goes, around 2009, which would be the San Diego Comic-Con year after the Twilight movie came out, um, there's a surge of Twilight fans created from no other fandom. So like new people attending Mm Comic-Con 
going into what is what is the uh, the heart of San Diego Comic Con, or so I'm told. Hall H, and just like swarming, camping out for the Twilight panel, and getting really hype. And everyone took umbrage at this for a variety of reasons. I watched a YouTube video of a bunch of people standing around at Comic-Con with signs saying Twilight ruined Comic-Con. It's about two minutes long. And they're they're not even chanting, really. They're just, like, shaking their fists and holding signs. Not yeah. even at... Like, I don't think there were Twilight fans on the other side of the camera. <laughs> they're just letting everybody know, I guess. Just showboating. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, vampires are so stupid. Oh, they sparkle. You know, you've... We all heard it. Yeah. But when I when I delve deeper into this and the variety of reasons as to why this might be, uh, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Also, at that convention, mm-hmm. at that same year, there was a panel on Glee. Oh. And there were a lot of people showing up for that as well. Okay. So there's a big surge of people who had not been there before. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I found was that all the people at Comic-Con were like, uh-oh, we've been, we've been found. <laughs> the world finally found us out. And they're coming into my space. Not my space, but... Uh, <laughs> but, you know, my... The real my, world. My little world. fandom circle, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the growth of Comic-Con has been like over the years. Mm-hmm. I know it started with like 100 people, and now it's just like gigantic media extravaganza. But I think there was a sharp uptick around then, and it was like, like nerdiness kind of went mainstream, so to speak. Was Big Bang Theory a thing around 2009? It's been on for a while now. Um, Yeah. Even if it's not, like, the idea that we haven't explicitly talked about this on Phanthropological, but we have, in just general conversation, talked about this idea of, you know, fandom as identity and kind of uh i'm trying to think of what it was but like letting people into the circle yes like suddenly like you're safe in your fandom like mm-hmm. you have a community you belong to that community and you're partly there potentially as a nerd depending on when you grew up because there's this sense of shame that you can't really enjoy that thing that you you enjoy yes and so you keep it insular you keep it close to yourself and there's a sense of vulnerability but when all these other random people come in and enter your fandom it's just like, even though you want to be, I guess you don't necessarily want to be accepting because you've been ostracized for your like of that thing. So it's hard to trust the other people. Mm-hmm. So they're othered. They're this other outside force and you don't want to let them in. So you don't want anybody in your tiny little safe space. Yep. And then Twilight fans show up and they get othered. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not liking the right kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were people yeah. who were fans of a thing who went to enjoy that thing together. Well, actually, yeah. we talked about this in um, in the Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. We talked about how the original science fiction fans were like, ugh, those Star Trek fans. Yeah. In that regard, it's the sense of like an entrenched group having a set of outside disruptors and not being fans of the, the change that's going on because it disrupts their way of life. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're like, I, d- I don't want people who like Glee and Twilight. I only want fans of these things. Yeah. That's who I identify Comics with. Comics and stuff. Yeah. These are my kind of people. Yeah. 
So, the idea that Twilight ruined Comic-Con because it took Comic-Con away from its natural constituency and handed it over to some other audience entirely. The target of this audience always shifts, but it is almost always young, and it is almost always female. Twilight makes a convenient scapegoat because it's a franchise that's not beloved by critics of the general populace, and it's possessed of sexual politics that are just horrifying enough to provide a shred of cover to anyone who wants to assault it, primarily on the grounds that it's aimed at a woman's inner 14-year-old girl instead of a man's inner 14-year-old boy. Before <laughs> Twilight, Harry Potter was the ruined Comic-Con franchise of choice, attacked on similar grounds. Comic-Con itself has admirable policies on sexism and harassment, but many of its attendees cling to an outdated sense of what belongs at the event particularly in hall h which is the inner sanctum wow i really want to see this hall h now there's <laughs> a pop culture shrine i feel like an ongoing theme and perhaps something we will tackle entirely separately it was this the starting point for this podcast talking about fan entitlement yes that's true yeah yeah like in that particular case, it's a different kind of fan entitlement that we envision because it's about, you know, it's like this is this is what Comic-Con is supposed to be about because I say so. And it's very gendered and it's very, um, it's like a very classical view of it's just like, well, it should only be this, this and this. It's very prescriptive. Yeah, this is what it's always been. So it should be that yeah. like forever. Yeah, as opposed to just being open to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Only only real fans, please. Jeez. Uh that is that is definitely a discussion for oh, a separate boy. topic. Oh, if you guys don't if you guys don't mind me throwing in a bit of a a bit of a, a shout out to another podcast in here. Sure. Uh there's a, a Doctor Who podcast that I listen to every now and then called Reality Bomb. Okay. Um it's got our got our good friend Alex Kennard on it, as well as Graham Burke. Um and uh every now and then they have this section of the podcast where it's like there's it's like a little skit like a little little comedy sketch and there the situation is that there's this bouncer in front of this club the club is like representing doctor who fandom and the bouncer is one of those gatekeepers that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. what will happen is that various people will come up to this gatekeeper and the gatekeeper will ask them super obscure questions like what's the serial code or episode code or whatever of of this story or like in such and such a story, this character did what with 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 this, and almost always these skits end with a woman coming up, trying to get in, and she'll have like written an essay addressing one of the questions, and like come up with a cross referenced paper for another one. She'll just rhyme off serial numbers like nobody's business, and then at the end of all this, the bouncer always just heaves a sigh and says, "Ah, all right." I guess you'll get in. And then as she goes in, after she's in, it ends with the bouncer saying, this fandom just isn't what it used to be. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. right, right. In as much as this probably would have been the ideal time to talk about that. I don't think any of us did any prep for that. Actually, no, no, wait. Sorry. Because that's that's talking about women entering a fandom. This is like what happens when, you know, women have a very uh, women are in, in all fandoms starting mm-hmm. with that but like this is one where it's very particularly arranged such that women are seem to be more interested in it than men mm-hmm. and men aren't happy about that because the same reason than that stupid gatekeeper sketch because because <laughs> yeah. people are jerks because people are jerks yep yeah i just want just a little clip this is uh from the telegraph this is an article written for the um 
about the opening, the premiere of the last Twilight movie. Breaking Dawn Part 2. Okay, cool. Okay. Got it. <laughs> they're a tough bunch, these Twilight fans. No wonder they're called Twihards. For the past week, they've been camping out in their thousands at a specially prepared fan camp set up <laughs> outside the LA Live Entertainment Center in downtown Los Angeles. In readiness for the world premiere of the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2, the fifth and final episode of the phenomenally successful film series. Not only have they had to contend with wintry temperatures and high winds, but have also endured the jeers and taunts of basketball fans passing the <laughs> camp on their way to watch the Lakers games at the nearby Staples Center. Executives at Summit Entertainment, which is releasing the film, are well aware of the publicity value and have done their best to make conditions as palatable as possible for their Twilight fan base. They've been planning the fan camp for three months, have hired security teams to protect the fans, put up a fence around the camp, and even paid for a weather service to provide hourly forecasts. Wow. Yeah. And that's another reason why I think there was perhaps a little bit of suspicion or, like, othering of, of Twilight fans... And, and such at Comic-Con because it woke up to, a, to another uh, different aspect of it, which is money talks. Yes. This thing is really successful. Yeah. We're not shutting these people out. <laughs> well, yeah. And like, I can see how the fans on the ground and in Comic-Con um, would have reacted the way that they did in 2009 when all this went down. But at the same time, I mean... I'm kind of surprised that the those fans of Comic-Con, like those long-time fans, didn't realize that it is a for-profit con run by the the companies who create all these comics and stuff. So, I mean, of course they're going to be going after properties and IPs and whatnot that are super popular so they can get more tickets sold and have more, more merch move and all that stuff too. Yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line, right? That's what Comic-Con is now. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 exclusive action figures and big announcements regarding shows and a chance to see all the celebs and all that. Yeah, but even even specifically in regards to Twilight, I find it interesting that Summit Entertainment went to those lengths to like protect these fans who are camping out for the Breaking Dawn Part Two um, premiere, because I found an article um, about the. Kind of the tail end, I guess, of the Twilight phenomenon, perhaps. Perhaps. It was about how, uh, across the states, Walmarts had launch parties for the home release of Breaking Dawn Part 2. Mm-hmm. And how Summit Entertainment funded these launch parties um, at these Walmarts. And the way that their, their PR person, Steve Nickerson, put it is that Summit Media runs these parties as a kind of thank you to the fans who, you know, came out to the theaters to make this movie, this series, such a big success. Camping out for a week. Yeah. See this movie. Yeah. But that's kind of like this weird interaction that I don't think has really happened much before between not the author, not like the team, not the the developers or whatever behind a thing, but like the company, the production company, if I'm not mistaken, and the fans which is like this weird removal from like the creator in the fans to this weird yeah, third party. The fact that it's Summit. I mean, Summit would have the resources for that kind of thing. Yeah, way more than an individual would, for sure. I mean, but Stephanie Meyer's still. had a lot of success. I don't know if she can foot the bill for stuff like that, you know. <laughs> Probably not. 
it's a demonstration that these fans are like really care about it, regardless of yeah. like whether it's a big money making juggernaut or whatever. <laughs> People have connected to this story. Yeah. Do you think that the time is a factor? Because I mean, we talked about uh, in Star Trek, there was a ton of fans. Um, obviously, hadn't hit the same mainstream level that say Twilight had had reached, but that's also a factor of the the, the times. Television was the medium of choice in, in that area, aside from print media. And there wasn't, as as we talked about, a huge way to connect to others. Now, uh, like when Twilight was originally released, like the first book in 2005 or the first movie in 2008, you know, the Internet had been a thing for, you know, 20 years. Wait, mm -hmm. uh, that's well, too much. Commercial like 10 years. 10 years, yeah. Yeah, 10 years. And so there was already this huge ability to connect with with other people and so that was kind of hey well i guess same with harry potter which we'll talk about in another episode <laughs> that it was a lot easier for something to kind of hit the mainstream and just be extremely visible again to contrast with, with star trek even when the later series were airing like um deep space nine to a lesser extent enterprise those were still in the area where the internet was kind of ramping up. It hadn't really yeah. reached the peak of being able to connect on just about any topic. So it, it, it still hadn't reached the mainstream. Harry Potter dug a lot of channels in the internet to be able to reach everybody. And Twilight just went straight through those channels. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. When Twilight hit, it was all set up. Yeah. Here's how you celebrate a fandom now, you know, fanfic, Twitter, message boards, what have you. Well, and what's also interesting to me is that, sure, new media, obviously, just very, it's everywhere. But even old media, in my research, I was like, apparently the LA Times uh, in 2010 and in 2014, oh, the LA Times in 2010 and The Wire in 2014 which is, uh, I guess, now owned by Atlantic Monthly Group. Hmm. Both has articles talking about the influence of the fandom and the growth of the fandom, which is unheard of. That's ridiculous. Those are two fairly major publications. Talking about fandom. Yeah, publicly acknowledging it, not in some random section. That's in the news. That is newsworthy in old media. Yeah. Well, even going back to Star Trek, I mean, there was that one article about uh, Gene, like an interview with Gene Roddenberry and how he was describing the show and everything and how they, they called Zine's cultist publications. I think that that, to be fair to your point, T, that, that article about Star Trek was like probably somewhere in the back. And it sounds like this stuff was probably in the front section of the paper. So there's definitely a big difference there. But I mean, I think True. people have always regarded fandom as news, just never as as important as it is regarded now communication between fans and between fans and creators has never been simpler yes or like you were able to do it at all now yeah well even even between fans right i mean like because <laughs> uh the running theme for this episode is mentioning harry potter and talking about how we're going to get to it um, oh, don't don't forget, <laughs> hearkening back to the Star Trek episode. Oh, of course, of course. Well, I, I already did that in this little little section oh, of mine. So everything old is new again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when uh, when that came up, 
I was I kind of got to thinking, well, you know, if there was no internet, would Harry Potter have been as big? Maybe not, because I think like with Harry Potter and with Twilight, maybe more so with Twilight, um, one of the big things was that people could read it, people could love it, and then they could go on the internet and meet other people who love it. And then you get that community going, and it's not just limited to, you know, the people that you run into on your day-to-day routine. It's just people that you meet online who have the same interests, who have the same passion for this thing that you do. And you can do that immediately. Yeah. As soon as you finish the book. Yeah. That's true. Okay, I got a I got a question. So we talked we talked a bit about how the fandom has like hit the mainstream, hit it hard, hit it fast. And we talked a tiny little bit about the anti fandom. I was wondering if you guys had any had any insights into that because I mean up until that point there had always been been haters of something. In fact I have like a, a quote from an article, the Twilighters are mad and they're not going to take our crap anymore. <laughs> That says, when I poke fun at Edward Cullen or Twilight fans, it's pretty clear I'm doing so at the expense of the obsessives. I can understand why Twilight fans take it personally. Anyone who has ever been a fan of anything knows that feeling well. The defensiveness that comes along when someone tries to bash something you love. But what we haven't really talked about, like, where did this anti-fandom come from? Because it was vitriolic. It was well out of tune with with like how popular the thing was like i kind of i kind of think that's that's why there was that sort of vitriol because it was popular i mean comic books have their own kind of popularity we're seeing a lot more popularity now because of all the movies and stuff um and like you know fantasy and sci-fi are fairly popular but it's like fantasy and sci-fi and comics and all that stuff started out as niche things Video games, too, started out as what nerds did in the 90s in their basements. They had NESs and their parents helped them set it up. But then they became popular. So they went from being niche things to popular things, whereas Twilight just started being popular. So I think because of that, people who had been fans of things like comics or video games or fantasy or sci-fi looked at Twilighters and said, you're not a real fan, you're just on this bandwagon. Let me just just put a put a match to the very tip of the paper that this discussion is written on and say Twilight is not really for dudes. Yeah. I I well, okay, so yeah. yeah. I I have some interesting stuff when we'll talk about cross-generational and like the the more mass appeal of of Twilight, but yes. uh for now I'll take your premise on the face of it. All right. All right. Well, I mean, do we do we want to move in to uh, talking about cross generational stuff? No one has anything to say about what I said. Well, okay, okay. Well, I'm gonna like. Well, I mean, if if we don't want to save it for cross generational stuff, then yeah, I've got something to say about it. I got something to say about it all the way to the bank. All right, right. (laughs) blood bank. This is the one occasion where the blood bank is the right answer. Oh man, another another fun bit of trivia about that uh, convention, Forever Twilight in the Forks. One of did the they, events run a blood drive? is a mobile blood drive. That is a Man. good idea. Get in <laughs> on the action. I, I also wonder, do they also have at least one item of themed food that is made to look like it has Ooh. blood on it? Okay, I don't know about having blood on it, but one of the restaurants in Forks um, does have on their, their menu Bellasagna. Hmm. <laughs> 
So I mean, it's it's pretty deep over there in Forks. Um, I mean, I mean, I feel like you could come up with some waffles with strawberry sauce or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. well, One of the off brand. Uh, yeah. I think I'll fork give that pun. I will not fork give that one. Will you fork get it? (laughs) I'm trying. Oh boy. Uh, Anyway, what I was going to get at was the the tourism website for Forks has a section for for Twilight, and most of it's taken up with, you know, some walking tours and this, uh, this convention. But one of the links on the Twilight section of the Forks tourism website is um, a list of things for the men to do. Oh, really? Yep. And uh, this list, you know, I was kind of excited by seeing this list. I was like, oh man, what kind of crazy stereotypical stuff is going to be on here? It's going to be great. It's going to be hilarious. I was kind of disappointed because it was basically a list of everything you can do in Forks that isn't Twilight related, like literally. So there's oh. bowling, there's a bunch of um, outdoorsy stuff, kayaking, fishing, hiking. Drag car races. Drag car <laughs> races, yes. <laughs> Surfing. Sur- oh, I guess that's probably no I have to imagine it's quite cold. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to fall in. No. No. You better be good if you go surfing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's something that, that they're aware of, uh, these tourism boards, that Twilight is predominantly a a female fandom, so to speak. All even, right. So I, this is ooh. well, even <laughs> even in the even in the city of Volterra, um, where the Volturi are based. Uh, fun fact: Stephanie Myers chose Volterra because the ancient uh, vampire council, which upholds vampire law in the Twilight universe, is called the Volturi. Volturi? Volterra? Aha. Uh-huh. Does it have anything to do with Voltaire? I mean... No, no, they just sound alike. It doesn't? So she, she, no. As far Whoa. as I know, it doesn't. But I'm the two, the two things sound alike, so she put the Volturi in Volterra. And uh, Volterra is this medieval town, you know, a small town in Italy. And um, it's, uh, it's, got a, it's got a rich heritage and everything. But the... The articles that I found talking about it and about the tourism that's come there, thanks to Twilight, um, pretty much exclusively, well, it would always refer to the tourists as tourists, but it would always mention that they were predominantly women or teenage girls. Hmm. So, I mean, even though it's coming from like a, well, a PR stance, basically, there's still this this sort of official acknowledgement that Twilight is a fandom for the ladies. Mm-hmm. You're gonna say something? Yes. <laughs> oh boy! All right, I was going to say this might be the perfect segue into talking about the appeal of Twilight and the how it it crosses more than just uh, different generations. It actually crosses different countries. It's quite international, as I'm sure Z's research will attest to. Mm-hmm. And also, I would argue, potentially across genders. Yes. Uh, one of the quotes that I found from an article called, Does Twilight Really Ruin Real Life Romance? <laughs> from Time. From Time Magazine. Time Magazine? Gentlemen. Nice. Time Magazine. 
2012, uh, November 16th. Uh, An interesting quote that was in the article was, women and men who shared their love of Twilight with their children. So I'm uh, like to read into this, maybe the men are reading it for their their, um, family, but like to continue. Mm-hmm. They spent time together at conventions and in some cases rearranged their lives to get more time for their hobby. Erzin says that Bella's blank slate characteristics and her tween and mom-friendly adherence to Edward's no-sex-till-marriage ideals means that the readers can project themselves onto her whether they are 12 or 32. Hmm. Yeah. So it's possible that, you know, somebody could kind of see that character and be able to project themselves regardless of, you know, whether they're a guy or a girl. And I'd actually would have almost liked to have seen how this episode would play out after life and death is published and the genders are reversed. I'm very curious yeah. about that release now that you've, you've mentioned it to Yeah. Yeah. I hope it gets released soon so that this isn't some weird, like upcoming news in like six years. So, so, by, so when this comes out, it will be obsolete quickly. Yeah. We'll, we'll have the, the scoop. Oh yeah. We'll have to do an update. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of twilight's appeal, I definitely came across a lot of things that did suggest like that weren't gendered in their explanations of the appeal. Like um, in an article called when twilight fandom becomes addiction, um, there is an explanation of the appeal simply as the archetypal allure of brooding bad boys and forbidden romance. Or there's the explanation from Kimberly Young, a professor at St. Bonaventure University in New York, who actually specializes in helping patients with internet addiction, who theorizes, who hypothesizes that the draw for Twilight comes from our infinite access to pop culture and that any addiction is about escape and the internet allows fans to connect with other people and to fill like a void that fandom other, you know, that fandom is filling while also creating these social bonds. So kind of like G said, you know, you can read the book and then hop online and talk to other people about it immediately. Mm-hmm. And then there was, there were other theories like this, this UCLA sociologist, David Haller or Hallie. Boy, oh boy. Sorry, David. Um, Type your his... notes next. <laughs> <laughs> Never long hand forever. Oh, it's doing, doing you a great service right now. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, <laughs> Professor David suggests that the appeal comes from a post 9-11 mindset Whoa. because oh, hey. in the books, the vampires, the Cullens, the werewolves, the, the Quileutes, you know, mm. all these all these people who are supernatural beings are people just like you and me. And so he ties it back to 9-11 saying that. The vampires represent a danger from people living within our midst whom you would not expect to be dangerous. Hmm. Okay, that... Oh, There's like this secret okay. world thing kind of going on. Okay, I'm not gonna... I'm gonna pretend I... Okay, yep. Yeah, cool. that's why I'm not so sure about that one. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's interesting. That's, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I can see at, at the face of it how that is, like, a reading into it, but I'm just like, oh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think um, also in terms of cross-generational appeal, you've got this idea, like, imagine that you know nothing about this fandom mm-hmm. and somebody distills it into, like, look, this this girl likes 
this guy, but also likes this other guy, and one's a vampire and one's a werewolf. So suddenly, not only if you weren't interested before, there's this polarizing element. Yeah. Yes. Like Team Edward, Team Jacob. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's yeah. like you've got like, uh, I, it's been a while since I've seen the movies, that, like that particular movie. But like you've got like the the brooding good guy and then the like really direct bad boy. Yeah, whatever. You know Super what Super direct. <laughs> Thank you very much, the Brontes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very much their stock in trade as brooding types. Yeah. In fact, Wuthering Heights, which is said to be Bella Edwards' favorite book, has been released, like re-released with a uh, a Twilight cover. Oh, interesting. Interesting yeah. indeed. Another quote from the article from from Time, which I think is is relevant when talking about how it appeals across generations. Is as follows not that twilight doesn't affect fans's real lives instead of harming marriages twilight may be fortifying a different relationship there is in posits where i saw it make the most impact on people's relationships was more with families you really did see mothers and daughters sometimes three generations generally women who had read the book she says they use it as a way to connect and talk about things like sex and having a first boyfriend a lot of topics that are tricky for parents and children this text becomes sort of a way to engage those questions without having it be so personalized. And I mean, not having read the Twilight books and uh, having gone through a lot of personal growth lately, that's something that I can relate to. Being able to talk about something without being so raw and, and vulnerable about it. Yeah. That is interesting uh, because yeah. it does bring up lots of those kinds of issues. Yes. For like, you know, it's from the perspective of a teenage girl. who's trying to figure out a whole heck of a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. there's a lot in there like her parents are divorced and one lives in arizona and one lives in washington oh i forgot about yeah. that and she doesn't have like a great relationship with her father so her relationship with his father is kind of rocky as she's getting fitting in a new school and you know these two different guys like like there's a lot going on there yeah that you yeah. know you can sit and just discuss without just being like you know talking to your child like hey are you okay are you having problems trying to figure things out it's like yeah, as you said, it's like a conduit for those kind of questions without it being so intensely personal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously you're not going to be like, hey, I'm dating a vampire. But <laughs> you're like, well, I was reading this book and uh, there was this part with with this girl, Bella, and she's having a hard time with her, her father who's divorced. And, you know, the parents probably like, oh, I see where this is going. Yeah. Or like maybe it's just a genuine interest. But like having those those moments to talk about would, would probably be able to definitely create this connection across different generations i'm curious z because all week you were like oh man i'm gonna look into the international stuff i'm very curious how that turned out unfortunately i was not able to find any information on that um as far as i can tell the fandom i mean i was inspired to do this because in uh in 2009 i was teaching english over in south korea and a lot of my i was teaching middle school so a lot of my students were you know square in the middle of the demographic for twilight and the movies were coming out, and there was a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz about it. And so I thought, you know, okay, all of these fans over here in Asia must be doing something. Over here in South Korea, Japan, China, they've got to be doing something, right? There's got to be, like, some kind of convention, some kind of, like, big push. And I couldn't find anything, unfortunately. But one thing, one, like, little tiny, tiny, tiny little thing that I found was that at the same time that twilight breaking dawn part two released in south korea a homegrown supernatural movie 
was also released called A Werewolf Boy. Hmm. Okay. And so these these two movies came out at the same time and you know Twilight has this huge momentum from all the other movies that have come out and and just Twilight mania. But then here comes A Werewolf Boy. It hits cinemas same day and it just creams Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2 at the box office. Hmm. There were 6.5 overall 6.5 million admissions for A Werewolf Boy. I'm guessing for opening weekend, but I don't I don't believe the article specified. And so I mean, I guess it like it showed people that there is a huge interest in paranormal stories and things about vampires and the like. And so local national creators took that and ran with it. I mean, the uh one of the people behind the movie actually said that Werewolf wasn't really, you know, really supposed to be twilight or anything like that it's um it's a fantasy of the emotions not a fantasy of cgi heavy action scenes yes Hmm. and i in passing i came across mention of a book that was billed as the south korean twilight called vampire flower which actually started out as a web novel but then turned into a web series Huh. and was fairly popular whether or not there's any sort of inspiration there or like direct connection i don't know but there's at least some sort of awareness that the two are are dealing with similar things hmm. interesting yeah i mean asia was my goal with that research but i did manage to find like in that article about tourism to volterra there was mention about all the people coming in from europe so that's still international to us over here in north america uh, yep. Yep. It's got multiple nations. It's international. <laughs> <laughs> well, plus, and speaking to what we've just been talking about, you know, the appeal of Twilight and how, you know, it crosses generations because it gives people this sort of common ground so that they don't have to talk about these really sensitive issues in a very vulnerable kind of way. Um, a lot of the fans that were coming to Volterra, you know, were asked what their thoughts on the books were and that sort of thing. And um, some of them said that Twilight was more meaningful to them than the Bible. Wow. And some of them said that the reason that they enjoyed the book so much was because the message was to save yourself from Mr. Right or just more generally that abstinence was made attractive. Interesting. I did see a little bit of that in my research about this idea of um, another thing that made it relatable was potentially the the conservative values. Yep. And that actually might tie into the whole idea of twi moms where, you know, the, you have this idea of like purity and abstinence and, and all of that. And so yep. it, it um, I imagined, especially in America, it feels like, you know, something you can, you can give your child to read and it won't, you know, won't teach them awful values. Yeah. Yeah. Or something like that. Hence going back to the bonding thing. Yep. It is vetted and passes the uh, passes the test. Yeah. I mean, there's still some, some like strange stuff that happens in the series, but it's not like it's not like you're handing your kid a a copy of a teen slasher movie and saying, Hey, hmm. learn everything from this. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to encounter such stories as we continue <laughs> the journey of this podcast. <laughs> Oh boy. Oh boy. 
um, in my researching this topic, these Twilighters, when I was looking at the stuff for the convention, I looked through the sponsors, I looked through the schedule. Um, one of the sponsors is National Twilight Night. And Wait, what? Yeah, I saw that and I was like, does that mean there's a National Twilight Night in the United States of America? No, it's it's actually, it might have started out as like a movie night between hardcore Twilight fans. But what it actually is, as of May in 2015, is a a not-for-profit charity oh. that actually describes itself as a national sisterhood striving to make a difference. And what they do is they run all sorts of events like slumber parties, uh, celebrations, auctions, fundraisers, um, movie and game nights. They also do stuff, of course, at the convention. And um, one of the things that they do is they help raise funds for the Forks Abuse Program, which is this charity in Forks that helps uh, children and women who are in abusive situations. Oh, wow. So hmm. for all the for all the hate that gets heaped on, on Twilight fans, they are doing quite a bit of good. That's really cool. Yeah. I would not have expected that. It really took me by surprise. Hmm, man. Fans are awesome, guys. It's true. Like, mm -hmm. I'm always surprised by the... There are things that I'm not surprised when we do our research. And then there's a lot of things that I read and I'm like, oh, it's yeah. like restores my faith in humanity a little bit. Yeah. As long as you're about balanced by the end of the episode, that's probably the best we can hope for. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we never have an episode that's tipped. <laughs> we just go straight down. <laughs> so, wow. It's like, I thought that was depressing and then it got worse somehow. Oh, Keep listening to Phanthropological to find out if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, this is the part of the show where we do community posts, which is yep. where we we have a little bit of quote or a post or something interesting we found from the fandom uh, as discovered in our research. doesn't necessarily fit into any of the stuff we talked about, but it's something that we picked out because it was interesting. Sometimes it's several posts. This is this is a quote and a, and a community post. It's very short. Uh, again, from that, does Twilight really ruin real-life romance? Uh, and the quote from the article begins on a forum for fans of jeep cars yes a jeep forum the rumor really is everywhere a poster writes twilight has ruined my life bleep those books that's all she does now then after me badgering her to put the damn book down all i hear is edward this bella that oh that sounds rough that was yeah i thought <laughs> it was uh that was an odd one like that that entire time article was interesting but I just like, that was at the beginning of the article. Wow. Elsewhere on the website, itthing.com, another blogger headlines his post, Twilight almost cost me my wife and my life, and writes, My wife loves Twilight as much as anyone I've ever met or read about, and I swear I loathe those stupid books a hundred times more than she loves them. Describing how his wife took a vow of chastity that she would not break until the book's characters did. Interesting. Yep. But, uh, for all the uncharitable quotes that I just had, um, I think those are all kind of undone by this, this next one, which came from the, uh, uh, Jezebel article that I don't remember mm. the name of. CNPRPL, Purple, says, 
Hear, hear. Amanda, thank you for speaking out. I am 42, married for 21 years, mother to two, hold several degrees, and absolutely adore both the Twilight Saga and Harry Potter. Yes, you can love both. <laughs> I'm not a squealing teen fan. I did not know there was a feud. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know this either. Isn't, this is interesting. Okay, go on. Jealousy is much of the driving force behind the criticisms of the fandom. Whether the critics covet the fame, the good looks, or the attention lavished on the authors and actors doesn't seem to matter. The envy reveals itself in the pettiness and gross generalization that these journalists use to make themselves feel better. It's sad and truly deserving of our pity. Throughout history, whenever someone or something gains a following, angry and lonely people cry foul. It's not new, just faster and more vitriolic with the advent of better media technology. I thought that was like a good, concise way of talking about it. Like when we're talking about anti-fans, it's just basically like some people want to watch the world burn. <laughs> True. Be like, well, I don't like that thing. Why does literally anyone else? Yeah. I don't get it. Well, it's better than pe that people like a thing than if they don't like a thing. I mean, that's yeah. positive, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually did research for the next segment. <laughs> what? That's right. This is this is now the T show stealing the spotlight. <laughs> bam, bam! Like this is where the curtain drops and the anthropological sign gets like covered up with the T show hastily scrawled on <laughs> paper and like probably not even paint. Probably just like pencil. Can barely read it from a distance. And out comes T in a top hat and a tuxedo T shirt. Yeah, I, you know. I... <laughs> Got to put the money where it counts in the top hat. <laughs> All right. This is the part of the show where we do the spotlight, where we pick an artist, um, a, an event, something interesting going on on the internet, in real life, whatever, and, you know, shine a little light on it. And uh, I think this is particularly relevant because it's related to next week's topic, Sailor Moon, which I realize we have not been plugging when we do next week's episode. No, we have not. Next week's yeah. Sailor Moon, everyone. Next week's Sailor Moon. Please stay tuned. Okay, this one is about Sailor Moon. Why is it about Sailor Moon? It is because it is a book. There's a book that a friend of ours has written, Stephen Savage. Uh, well, not just Stephen Savage. It is called Her Eternal Moonlight. It's written by Stephen Savage and Bonnie Whaling. Uh, mm -hmm. It is a book that uh, covers a whole bunch of interviews with fans of Sailor Moon, talks about the show and kind of the unique space that it occupies. In particular, it talks about a show of surprising differences in depths, for example, Sailor Moon's story, approach and values that are deeply affected by the audience. Um, it talks about a tale for and about women that didn't play by familiar rules. And as we just talked about in today's podcast, um, women in fandom have an unfortunate relationship, even though they've been there since the beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They've always been there. Yep. You just have to go back to Joan Winston, always there. It's a technocultural combination. So it's talking about a show that arrived in the mid to early 90s where the internet was just starting to be a thing and people were kind of having all this this combination of things and how it was a source of inspiration and continues to be a source of inspiration for so many uh sailor moon crystal having just come out a couple of years ago and people still loving the show and its voice actors and its animators it looks like a fantastic book that just came out like last week anyway you can check it out at uh hereternalmoonlight.com and you can get it on Kindle or in print. 
Uh, I don't know how long it takes to get either of those, but you should definitely check that out. And you should also check out next week's episode, which is going to be on Sailor Moon. So go grab the book, study up, and we will see you on the other side when we talk about Sailor Moon. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And you can find us online at phantropological.com. If the website's not your bag, you can also check us out on various social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, all at The Next Cast. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you'd like to email us, perhaps let us know fandoms you'd like to see us cover or the numerous things that we missed in an episode about a fandom that you belong to. Nick at thenixcast.com is a place to send all that stuff. You can also check us out on Podbean or the Podbean app. I suggest you do. And uh, until next time, remember, everyone's a fan. But uh, that Swan Sigma thing could have led you there because it is September 13th. Oh. How? S. Nope. (laughs) Sigma starts with a C, by the way. S? Oh, right. Sigma does start with a C. Well, Swan doesn't. All the clues were there. All the clues were there. (laughs) All the clues are there. C kind of looks like 13 if you squint and turn it around a bunch. No, it doesn't, but B does. <laughs> starts Bella. You can feel free to cut this part out if you like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. And um, one other...